Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. It's so good to be back behind the mic after a couple weeks off of podcasting. I had uh, an online training course I was a part of and some other some other stuff I've been juggling. So podcasting kind of went on the back burner, which is exactly where it needed to go for a little while because I've been percolating on something. Something has been working me and challenging me. And that is the story of the Fisher King. That's what I want to talk about today, the Fisher King. And this ancient, um, this ancient story and what it might have to reveal to us one week out from the election. So that's kind of the terrain I want to wander around in. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Thanks for giving me a chance, really. And thanks to my Patreon supporters who make this thing happen. I cannot thank you enough. I'm deeply grateful for your support. If you want to be a patron, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Kent Dobson and join this little community. Um, And also, you know, My Patreon supporters, they send me little messages and questions and ideas and feedback and, and it helps it, it gets my mind turning. And sometimes I even, um, you know, question some of, (laughs) some of what I'm putting out there in the world. Like I find, I find the challenge interesting and other times I feel inspired and sometimes people open up new doors I didn't know were there before. So anyway, I'm just grateful for the feedback. And if you like this podcast, share it, please. Leave a review on iTunes. That makes a big difference. Rate it. Um, share it on your you know, social media platforms. I'm not all that good at social media. And actually, I feel like um, I'm getting, I'm less interested in it the more I go on. But um, it's one tool to try to, to get this podcast out there and the other kind of uh, material, the other kinds of resources I'm trying to put out there in the world. So anyway, Um, yeah, thanks for being a part of this. And I realized I looked at my, I wondered how many podcasts have I made? And I, I looked today and and this one will be the Fisher King will be podcast number 53. It's hard to believe that I've made that many. And, um, yeah, and I hope to keep going. I'm feeling more inspired than ever. There's something about this time for me, and this is not true of everyone I know, but there's something about not traveling, which has been a big part of my life and settling into home and facing things at home and fixing rooms that needed to to be fixed in my own home and walking around and working on my own little plot of land that has been, um, I don't know, settling and um, probably, I'm right on the line between extroversion and introversion in the Myers-Briggs, but I'm, I'm more of an extrovert. And I feel like, I don't know, there's something about this time that is helping me. What's the fancy way of, I can't remember the, the, um, what does Jung call it? He calls it the, um, inferior function, the inferior function, which is introversion for me, that growth looks like cultivating that part of who we are, because everyone has both, is both has both extroversion and introversion. And um, the inferior function, if we're going to mature and become a little more whole, a little more well-rounded, needs to be cultivated. And I just feel like, wow, it's like the era, the age, the crises is inviting me deeper into this, this um, 
I don't know, this resource, I guess I could say. And um, meanwhile, the muse has been whispering all kinds of things. So I've been hard at work, working on my next book. And I just put out, if you haven't heard yet, a long format audio teaching or really an audio book. It's called A Grain of Wheat, The Christ Symbol. Six and a half hours of content teaching around the symbol of Christ. I'm, tr- I'm trying to read the story differently. And actually, it's not even that I'm trying. I'm hearing the Christ symbol so differently than I used to. If you know, I spent most of my kind of adult uh, life, at least 15 years, doing a deep dive into biblical studies. I moved to Israel and got a graduate degree and part of another degree and um, and studied ancient language and archaeology and comparative religion and uh, historical critical scholarship and um, Jesus seminar stuff. And, you know, um, and I loved it and it blew my mind and blew the doors off of my initial starting place, evangelical Christianity. And I'm so grateful for that. But that's not where it ended. It's like that was just a passageway that I went through. And there's something now that I'm finding even more provocative and challenging reading Christ on the symbolic level. Um, the archetypal level, which is not like some new fancy sounding thing. That's how the church fathers talked about Christ. In fact, Carl Jung got the word archetype from the church fathers. You don't believe me? It's in a footnote of his. Um, I was like, dang, all right. So um, anyway, that's a that's a teaser. You should definitely buy it. It's only 10 bucks. It helps me out. It, it inspires me to make more. I'm cooking on something the book of Revelation, actually. I don't know if I'm going to make it a podcast or or another kind of long format audio teaching. I may just make it a free podcast. We'll see. But anyway, if you haven't, please, please buy A Grain of Wheat, The Christ Symbol and give me some feedback, even if you don't like it or you or you find you find some you find that you disagree. Fantastic. That's an amazing way for both of us to grow. So listen to it. Check it out. Uh, you can go to my website, kentdobson.com right on the homepage, click on the link, 10 bucks, it's yours in audio format. So let's talk about the Fisher King. And I don't know what you've been feeling lately, one week out from the election and the number of COVID cases on the rise here in Michigan. And it seems like in most places in the United States and now most places in the world, which is exactly what the um, professionals were, were telling us would happen. The fall would roll around, be, there would be a second wave, and we better get prepared, and here it is. So I've been feeling kind of a little overwhelmed with numbers and statistics. Oh my God, and I'm so sick of polls. And, and I have poll fatigue, even left over from 2016 when the polls were so obviously and terribly wrong when it came to what was actually happening in the United States. And, and you wonder now, is that going to happen again? <laughs> um, even if it does, no matter who you're going to vote for, I think there is some suspicion as to the influx of this information. Like, who's giving us the information? Why are they giving us the information? What's the rubric? What's the mechanism? Um, there's some general mistrust. And actually, it seems like um, the news cycle is just 
It's like there's a gasoline fire underneath the news cycle fueled by um, statistical analysis, like a study here, a, a survey here, a poll here, and then they, you know, have a panel of experts and they talk about that for, you know, an hour and they move on to the next one. And, and you don't know how to assimilate this information. What do you do with this? I was, it was even watching the NFL. It was like, you know, the, the Seahawks were playing or something. And, and the announcer was saying, I'm kind of making this up, but kind of not. He was saying, well, when the Seahawks are up by 14 points in the second quarter, there's only a 70% chance that the opposing team will come back in the fourth quarter. I'm like, what? What? You know, who is making this up? Who the hell has time to do that level of analysis? And even if that is a quote fact, what do we do with it? What's the context? What's the story? Why are we talking about it this way? Does this affect the way the game is played? The fact that way that we're supposed to watch the game? What is going on? And I often think these days of David White's poem, this is not the age of information. Forget the news. This is not the age of information. Forget the news. Forget the blurred screen. Um, this is the age of loaves and fishes where one good word is bread for a thousand. One good word is bread for a thousand. And if you've listened to this podcast before, you probably heard me quote that poem. It's just like, this is why I love poetry, because... It's dabbling in, in truth that transcends the particularities of the urgent, at the statistically urgent moment. It's like the falcon vision high above saying, wait a minute, look around, you know? So, yeah, um, I think... Part of how I'm, I was going to say wired, I'm trying to get away from talking about the psyche or even the brain as a computer. I think it's uh, not all that helpful. Although I've been reading Steven Pinker's book and he kind of, he has a love-hate relationship with the, with the analogy of human brain and, you know, computer. Um, so I have some th things to learn along those lines. But in general, I don't like equating it with a mechanism because it's far a mechanism like a computer because it seems to be far more complex, not to mention the chemicals of the body and, and um, you know, on and on and on. But anyway, what was my point? That part of how I'm made up, part of my own perhaps gifts in the world is to try to stay connected with the ancient stories. I don't know why. In fact, sometimes I feel like I don't know what era I'm living in. As if a medieval myth like the Fisher King is coming across the news ticker. That's, that's how I feel. It's like, what age am I living in? I feel like in one moment I'm 50,000 years old and, and in another moment I'm, you know, scrolling through my phone. You know, it's almost as if the psyche has no time. And, and I think, if you've been listening to this for a while... I think ancient stories, I think biblical stories, I think ancient symbols have something to offer the world. See, a myth is like um, the ancient form of Wikipedia. Wikipedia works because all kinds of people can update it continuously at all times. And that mechanism 
tends to filter out anything that's untrue and unnecessary. Well, that's what a myth is, except expand that over decades and centuries and even eons of telling and retelling and updating and changing slightly. And what happens over time is the story, the core of the story gets rarefied and everything else is like chaff that's blown away with the wind. And we're left with just the essentials, mysterious, strange images and encounters, just a few phrases and words, not, you know, not, not very wordy, not very elaborate, but just boiled down, rarefied, um, down to the essence. And the reason why we can trust them on one level is because they've stood the test of time. They've transcended cultures and languages and generations and borders and even oceans. So I'm the kind of person, I think, and I think we're called to do this in the 21st century, is to have a big vision for the future, to face forward. But to do so, I think, in a healthy sense, we have to have one ear on the past. How did we get here? What mistakes did we make along the way? What truths were hard won for how to become a healthy human being? That's really what myths are about. Myths are about the process of individuation, human growth, becoming an individual, taking responsibility, growing into an adult and an elder, making a contribution in, this, in society. And some of those myths are are warnings about um, pitfalls uh, and trap doors that you should avoid, you know. Um, they're, they're hard won, and I think we ought to, ought to be humble enough to listen to our ancestors and to not assume um, Google is all we need. But what about the rarefied wisdom that's come down to us through myths and stories and images and art and biblical stories and religious texts that, um, that teach us how to become human? And they also give us little clues about what culture is like and what happens to cultures over time. And the Fisher King is one of those stories. It's both a story of the journey, you could say, growing into an adult and the tasks at hand, um, and, and also a story about what happens to cultures over time, what happens even to healthy cultures, what happens when they start to get sick and what's that like. So anyway, that's, that's the kind of terrain I want to want to roam around in today. And I'm just going to tell a bit of the Fisher King because this would be a five-hour podcast if I did the entire story. If you don't know what the Fisher King is, it's also sometimes called the Grail story or the search for the Holy Grail. Um, and there are really dozens of ancient versions. It, it exploded in the Middle, middle Ages um, as a prominent story all over Europe and beyond the borders of Europe. Its origins predate the Middle Ages. Some even have even suggested that um, the origins of the story predate Christianity. That's important because the Holy Grail is sometimes thought of as the cup of Christ. But um, in some senses, it's probably more likely that it was a kind of sacred vessel that merged with the, some of the central images inside Christianity, which is what happens to religious stories and um, religious symbols anyway, but it's very, very old. And, um, and, and again, as I said before, I think worth turning an ear 
toward. And it's funny also because like my first introduction to the Grail story was Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I mean, it's like when, when I was in high school, this was like my all time favorite movie and it still ranks up in the top 10. And um, I still quote lines from it. I'm sure to, you know, making my kids mad and annoyed at my cheesiness. But one reason why it has such resonance is not just because it's, you know, because of the um, satire and, and the comedy. That's, of course, there. But it's, <laughs> it's rooted in the structure of the story itself. Same with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Same with the Fisher King movie with Robin Williams. Same with about half a dozen other Disney-oriented movies. Same with, in very, very loose form, um, many of the superhero-oriented movies have this kind of quest holy vessel kind of aim. And my guess is some of those writers are doing it on purpose. Some of them are, are following, falling into it by accident because the structures exist in our psyche. Um, something like uh, a spiritual or mythic or archetypal DNA gets passed on and it, it affects the way we see the world and how we structure um, meaning how we, how we make sense of things. So in some senses, you know, you want to write a blockbuster star Wars. There are some patterns that uh, one might want to use. <laughs> so anyway, the Fisher King, the opening scene of the Fisher King is where I want to start. And we meet the Fisher King. And the first thing we find out about him at the beginning of the story is that he's wounded. And the story of his wound takes on several different possibilities. By the way, if you want to know where I'm getting all this stuff, Robert Johnson is a good resource for the Grail stories. Emma Jung and Mary Louise von Franz have a, have a really dense academic work about the Grail legend. Definitely worth checking out if you're that kind of person. I just want you to know uh, where I'm getting some of this stuff. So anyway, the Fisher King opens with the wounded king. And there are a couple different stories about how he received his wound, maybe four or five that I know of. I'll just mention maybe two. And one is that he was out um, uh, wandering and hungry out in the wilderness somewhere. And he sees the Fisher King, the king, who's really a knight at this point. He sees a uh, salmon roasting on a spit. And he's starving and he thinks, I want some of this. And the salmon, especially to the Celts and to other indigenous people groups, was a sacred fish, a divine fish, really an image of the divine. Long before the fish was ever associated with Christianity, it was a symbol of the divine. And especially the salmon, too, because, you know, it lives in the vast ocean and also gives its life sacri sacrificially for the future by coming upstream. Um, thus feeding the community and the land and the trees and, and really the whole ecosystem. So he grabs a, a piece of salmon and it burns his hand, which, a way, which is a way of saying divine encounter, transcendence, a flash of consciousness can burn you. It's not, you know, I just walked out and I was just instantly enlightened and I felt a warm glow and my life was changed forever. No, the waking up of consciousness like that and even divine encounter can burn you. It's like Isaiah. Um, he has this vision and an angel, really a, a scary, frightening, winged being comes and burns his lips with a coal. That's what I'm talking about. You know, just 
seared by, by the mystery itself. And, and so he burns his hand and he puts his hand in his mouth to alleviate the pain and thus accidentally consumes some of the divine, which wounds him. That's so interesting to me. He receives a wound from an encounter. It's like Jacob wrestling the divine, wrestling the mystery, wrestling the angel who walks away with a limp. There's something very, very old about this. Increased consciousness makes you limp, and he suffers a wound. And the question is, you know, in the backdrop, how will this wound be healed? Will this wound ever be healed? So that's one story. The other is... Um, this knight king, the fisher king, is out on his horse, and he's kind of on a sensual quest. And it's like he's coming into sexuality and sensuousness, and he's out in the woods, and he meets another knight who's had a vision of the true cross. So it's sort of like, this is straight from Robert Johnson, nature and logos, order, vision, um, higher nobility, meeting and colliding. Nature, sensuality, and order, meaning, um, vision, meet, and they lower their lances and they go after each other. And interestingly enough, the knight with the true vision of the cross is killed, but the king, knight, fisher king, is mortally wounded, severely wounded. And it's, a, it's, it's very interesting psychologically because it's like saying, yep, Part of what happens when we grow up is our instincts, our sensuality clashes with the logos meaning higher order um, uh, calling of humanity and really both get wounded. That, that's, that's kind of my interpretation. Both get wounded. And the question is, how will that be healed? How will our instincts and our sexuality and our sensuality heal? How will our vision for, you know, is it one or the other? So these are the major questions and tensions of life. And so what happens is the king is wounded from that point on. And, um, and in that particular narrative, he's wounded through the hips or through the thigh. Um, in other words, through the, the genitals is really, it's, it's a euphemism. Just like in the Bible, um, the, um, the thigh is a euphemism for the, for, the, for the genitals. Abraham tells his servant, let's make, a, let's, let's make an oath. Put your hand on my thigh. You know? It's a way of expressing that the future and vitality uh, of life, especially from the masculine uh, point of view, um, where's the center of, of vitality? Well, the thigh, so to speak. This is going to come up in a few minutes, by the way. It's going to get even more graphic. You know, better put the E uh, explicit, you know, lyrics on my podcast. So anyway, so we meet the wounded king and he's been wounded a long time. And it tells you something that, um, that from a cultural point of view, kingdoms can suffer, uh, a wounding event that festers and kings when, uh, suffering, a wounding event that's festering, I'll come to that in a second, affects everybody else in the kingdom. So the opening scene, you've got the Fisher King, and he's so ill that he's about to die, but he can't die. It's like he can't die and he can't live. He's right there on the balance. And this goes on day after day after day after day, and it's affecting the entire kingdom. Crops are not growing. Um, babies are not being born. Um, new life, creativity, art, 
um, everything that culture needs to progress and to um, mature is stagnant because the king is ill. Now, I want you to already, if you're not, start thinking, how's this apply to me? How's this apply to my community? How's this apply to the world situation right now? I mean, not that you have to answer those, but those are the kinds of questions that ought to be hovering. How is this an image of just the way things are? And what's the invitation? So the Fisher King is wounded, and every single day in front of him is paraded a great banquet and a series of symbols. So he's brought out on the cot, he's sat down in the great banquet hall, and a massive parade of beauty and goodness and meaning is brought out before him. There's a lance. All this stuff is highly symbolic, which I won't go into right now, but there's a lance that's bleeding and never stops. I think there's a sword. There's a platter. Um, And finally, the Holy Grail is brought out. We meet the Holy Grail, the cup of Christ, the cup of vitality, the cup of meaning, the cup of the soul, the cup of the the deep self um, is brought out. And the when the cup is brought out, it's almost like a, a horn of plenty and, and, the, and the banquet hall is just pouring with food and drink and, and people are dining and, and having a great time and, and um, uh, there's, there's a, there are huge um, feminine and masculine themes in here too, which I won't go into, but maybe I should just mention the way to read ancient myth is to think about masculine and feminine as archetypes because from the psyche's point of view, all of us contain masculine and feminine, both. And sometimes uh, one who's more masculine in their orientation needs to grow into the feminine. And sometimes those who are uh, feminine in, in their primary orientation need to grow into the masculine. It's like that yin and yang. It's the tension between the two. It's not a flattening out. You know, It's not like what Ken Wilber calls the mean green level. Where we'll just flatten everything out. Um, and make everything the same. No, the poles, the tension between masculine and feminine, both internally and externally, is part of the spark of life. So there's like, there are, are all these um, feminine figures that are bringing out uh, these gifts into the castle. But here's the deal. The king can't drink from the cup. He's too ill. And meanwhile, a jester, a court jester, who's the truth teller in these ancient stories, same in Shakespeare, the trickster, jokester, um, the comedian in our in our present day, the truth teller says there says a kind of prophetic phrase. He said, "Someday, while we're hosting this banquet, a stranger will come in and ask the right kind of question that can heal the wounds of the Fisher King." And here's the question: Whom does the Grail serve? That's the question. So right from the beginning, we know from a metaphoric, from a symbolic point of view, what the most important question is, and it is, whom does the grail serve? And until somebody learns to ask this question, the kingdom is going to remain sick, the wounds of the king will continue to fester, everyone will suffer, and the king himself will not be able to drink and dine at his own table. So it's, it's interesting because even if we go back to some of his initial, like the salmon story, for example, it's like he's tasted something. He's tasted the truth. He's tasted meaning and depth, consciousness, you could say. Um, but now he can only look at it as a distant memory. I remember the day, you know, that I could 
taste the cup. But now all I can do is sit here wound identified. You know, it's like <laughs> I just thought of that movie, um, Napoleon Dynamite. My favorite character, uh, character is Uncle Rico. You know, he's still like living in the past, you know, remember, you know, back in 94 when I, when I was captain of the football team, you know, he's just, he's stuck right there. He's wound identified. Bet I can throw a mountain, bet I can throw this football over those mountains. You know, that kind of like, you know, people like that. Maybe you're like that at times. And see some, there was something beautiful that was tasted back then. But now it feels like a distant dream. And all I know is my wounds. I'm old. I'm not in shape anymore. I'm ill. And I don't know if I'll ever get any better. That's that victim and wound identified king that we carry within. Regardless of gender here. Okay? Masculine and feminine are not the same thing as gender. They're, they, I'm talking about archetypes. So regardless of gender. And you can say the inner queen if you want. The inner king, the inner queen. Um... When wound identified kind of looks nostalgically back on the past, but can't get off the couch and drink the cup. What you could say is they don't know how to ask the big question yet. Whom does the grail serve? So that's the starting place. That's the, the opening of the kingdom. And I want to say, you know, something else here, a little bit of a sidetrack, um, because if we think about the king as representing tradition, you could even think about the king as representing father as archetype, because father, king are um, are really important ancient ancient archetypes. Archetype just means pattern, by the way, in case you think that sounds fancy. But the pattern of of the good father and um, of the good king, and you could even say the good mother, the good queen, although there are whole separate stories um, that 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 bring out the nuances of, of feminine maturity. But anyway, let's just stick with um, the masculine here for a second, the king, father. It tells you something, that over time, this is what's going to happen. The kingdom is going to get sick. The kings are going to be wound identified. Oh, my God. I can barely even say that with, without, like, actually a kind of sadness about the state of affairs in the United States of America. And I am not talking about one person. I'm talking about the system itself, so caught up in its own private ideology, so demonizing the other, so identified with its own wounds, you know, both sides word policing the other. How dare you not use politically correct language. How dare you use politically correct language? You know, this kind of like um, sensitivity on both sides that is really wound identified. It's a kind of sickness. But you think, oh my God, how do we ever get here? And the story is saying, this is what happens to empires and to kingdoms and to fathers and to brave knights that have lost the way. You know, it's what happens. The question is, how is the individual renewed and how is the culture renewed? And those are those must hold hands. I mean, I am still of the opinion that the primary way to make change in the world is to start at home. You know, be the change you want to see in the world. That's the that's where I'm coming from. So I'm always, you know, wanting to return to the individual. I'm not I'm not against action groups and collective things. And I'm not against that. I think it, it's a both and, but 
I'm saying don't go around around human individual transformation. That's where it must start if you want a change of consciousness that eventually spills into the collective. So that's where I'm coming from with that. But um, as I said, a little detour is in order. So when I was in graduate school, I had a whole, I think it was a year-long class, a year-long or semester, I don't remember which, just on Egypt um, mythology and archaeology and history. A fascinating class, and and in some ways I wish I could take it again because I wasn't that interested in it at the time. I was more like, well, can we get back to the Bible and Judaism and the rabbis and things like that? But um, in any case, it, it (laughs) it was a profound class because the very end of it ended with this Mount Sinai climb, and it changed my life, you know? I mean, that's what my, my book, Bitten by a Camel, that's the major story in the book, takes place at the, at the tail end of this class. But anyway, um, I, got, I got into um, Egyptology for a little while you know, through this class, but I don't think I really understand it. And not that long ago, I heard a lecture by Jordan Peterson who was riffing on the Osiris myth. And I was like, oh my God. I already knew about connections between Horus and the Christ story, which some scholars have put forth and others have said there's not a connection. It doesn't matter. That's how scholars make a living. I think there's a connection. Others say, I don't think there's a connection. Uh, we should pay you, you know, lots of money to sit in your office and argue with one another. I'm not against academics. Um, in any case, this lecture that he gave, you know, sort of like... Um, it, it blew my mind, and I realized I was once again floored how by how amazing these myths are. So I'm just I'll give you like the drive-through McDonald's version of the Osiris myth because it's related to the Fisher King. So Osiris is the father figure, tradition, um, the god of the god of tradition. You could say just the way things are. He's the Fisher King. He's um, representing that needed sense of order in the world. But, as with all things, like the yin and the yang, you need chaos. The world is both order and chaos. The world is both logos and eros. Um, And along comes his brother, Set, who is an embodiment of pure destruction. I think that's the best word for it. You can say evil, but I like destruction because... Set is bent on tearing everything down. Just whatever it is, whatever tradition says, whatever Osiris is about, whatever is orderly and lawful and organized, which that sums up Egyptian society perfectly, um, I just want to burn it down, tear it down. That's that kind of destructive. We see that in today's culture with nihilism, really, a kind of nihilistic you can see this creeping up even in in some of the protests that are happening right now. Just, you know, um, if you were to stop someone on the street, let's say they they genuinely con- cared about uh, Black Lives Matter or some other cause, and they told you, hey, next week I'm going to go to this march. I just feel like I want to stand up for justice. And and if you stop them and said, um, hey, do you, do you think you're going to burn up a cop car next week, they might look at you and say, no way in hell would I do that. What do you mean? But in the moment, sometimes the spirit of set takes over 
And it's like the, the, um, what's under the lid, the rage, the regret, the um, anger, the sense of injustice, the victimization, um, just might boil over to just burn the whole effing thing down. And you think you're above that? I say, uh-uh, you don't, you're then naive about, <laughs> about the shadow side of the psyche. So that's set. And so he burns the kingdom down. They get into this massive fight and he kills Osiris. He kills tradition. Again, what is this saying on the, on the larger scale? It's saying empires rise, empires fall. Um, leadership comes to power and it gets destroyed. And it's often destroyed by just the power of destruction itself. Burn the thing down. And Osiris is scattered all over the, the desert, all over the underworld, just as, as many pieces as possible. Tradition is just blown up. So... Along comes Isis, I believe. She's the um, wife of Osiris in a kind of grief and lament, wanting to bring back to life Osiris. So she goes into the underworld. So the feminine is part of what lures us into the underworld. You know, this is Persephone going into the underworld. And um, in the underworld, she begins to search out pieces of Osiris, trying to piece him back together. And she finally finds his phallus. And um, if you've ever seen an Egyptian um, obelisk, that's the phallus symbol. That's Osiris's phallus. And that's what's at the heart of Washington, D.C. Every time I see it, it makes me laugh. I think, oh, there's, the, there's Osiris's phallus right in the center of our country. You know, God bless America. So in any case, she um, mates with the phallus and gives birth to Horus. And Horus is this divine human child, um, born miraculously, who is symbolized as the falcon, the visionary. And he goes to fight Set, really to take revenge for his father's death. And he defeats Set, not totally. He doesn't um, kill him because you can never kill that power. It's always there. The power of evil, of human evil, is always present. It will always be present. I don't care what kind of utopian fantasy you want to cook up. Set will be present. So he gets banished for a while to the desert, and Horus begins to make order. And this is the part I got from Jordan Peterson that I that I hadn't heard before, and I don't uh, and I don't remember coming across it in my or remembering it when I had to study this in graduate school. It's not enough just that Set is defeated. What Horus does it. Go, he goes down into the underworld. And I probably should have mentioned that at this at the beginning. So one of the things that was characteristic of Osiris is that, yes, he represented leadership, order, um, law, and tradition, but he was blind. Okay? I don't know if Set blinded him or if he was just blind beforehand. That's very interesting. It's like, it's like in the Isaac story. Yes, Isaac is the chosen one, the son of of Abraham, but he can't see well, and he's blind, and the next generation is going to have to take up the task of seeing a vision. So Horus goes down into the underworld, and who's, who himself has been blinded in one eye, and gives sight to Osiris, which resurrects him, and the three reign together, the masculine father, the feminine mother, so uh, tradition and femininity 
um, reign together with Horus, the hawk, uh, excuse me, the falcon visionary. So here's the answer to the question. What should happen to tradition? It should be restored. It's part of what why I'm still talking about the Bible in these ancient stories. It's not, you have to go into the underworld and sift out what's needed and what's no, and what's no longer helpful and resurrect, resuscitate, um, and allow our ancestors to carry the hard-earned vision forward to help us into the future. Something like that. Um, it's not enough to rely on the spirit of Set to destroy everything. It's not enough to remain stuck and blind or like the Fisher King, wounded. Um, it's about restoration, the possibility of restoration. So take that story, hear what you want to hear, and um, yeah, <laughs> and, and in a way, you can use that as a little backdrop for the Fisher King. So it tells you something very similar. Tradition gets sick, wounded, blind, and scattered out across the underworld, and something has to happen to bring some of that back to life so that the kingdom can be restored, because chaos and order are always battling it out, okay? Set and Osiris are always battling it out. Cain and Abel are always battling it out. The yin and the yang are always uh, in this complex tension of, uh, of, of embrace and repulsion. That's the way it is. So... Um, in the Grail story, back to the Grail story, the Fisher King, the question, whom does the Grail serve, is the question at hand, the thing that seems to have the capacity to restore the kingdom. So, why is he called the Fisher King? Because the only way he alleviates his pain is to go out fishing. And... I, I'm getting this straight from Jung. Jung says water is often a symbol of the unconscious, and so are fish. So he's like dabbling with the unconscious, and which alleviates him, which tells you that real healing has to happen in the unconscious, has to happen on the inner level, not just the outer level. But he only just fishes. Then he goes back and um, for this kind of grief banquet. Um, one day he's out fishing, and a long well, I, I should, I should, I was about to introduce the next chapter, the next character, but um, I should do that before I say how they meet. So that's the opening story, the banquet. The next piece that I want to highlight is the introduction of the character Parsival, which means something like holy fool, innocent fool. And um, he lives at home with his mom. And his dad was a knight. I don't think he even knows his dad was a knight, but his, his dad was a knight and he, and he was killed. And um, one day, Parsifal is just out wandering around the woods and he sees, I think, five noble knights on horseback, or I, I believe five. Um, maybe the, the number definitely does matter, but I don't remember it exactly right now. But anyway, he sees some knights and he comes back home and he says, Mom, I've seen a knight. Enough is enough. I'm going out. I have to become a knight. I'm going to find King Arthur. I'm going to be uh, join the, the round table. I'm going to be a knight. And she pleads with him, don't go, don't go. This is what happened to your father. He was killed. He was a great knight, but he was killed. I don't want you to die. He says, Mom, it doesn't matter. I'm going anyway. I have to do this. This is that adolescent awakening um, and the beginning of the separation between uh, the mother and the son, you know, the, 
the mother complex here is, is, is at work and she's begging and pleading. So she says, all right, fine, you can go, but wear, my, wear this underwear I'm going to make for you, which is funny in and of itself. Wear this underwear and, um, and uh, don't ask too many questions. That's the only thing I say. Uh, wear this underwear and don't ask too many questions. So out Parsifal sets into the, into the world. And here he has a series of adventures, and I'm not going to go into great detail about them. You can read the story yourself if you want, or the different versions of it. But I'll mention just a few passing things on our way to the Grail Castle. So Parsifal sets off. He meets a damsel, I think, uh, in distress sort of thing. And this is the awakening of his sensuality, but he decides, I have to keep going. Um, so he keeps going. Um, I think shortly thereafter, he meets uh, Gornaman, I believe is the name. This is a kind of grandfather mentor. I just made a podcast a podcast ago about the mentor and the need for it. So he kind of gives him some sage advice, uh, Gornaman does. And he says to him um, that someday you'll actually come into the grail itself. And when you do, don't forget to ask the question, whom does the grail serve? So it's very interesting. Um, we know from the beginning that that's the question that's going to heal the king. Parsifal is told at the beginning of the story, you got to ask the question, whom does the grail serve? The question is, will he ask it or will he listen to his mom's advice, which is don't ask too many questions. So he sort of takes that advice and he gets some other advice along the way too um, and sets off and he, and he meets... Uh, eventually his muse, he meets the, the, I'm interpreting here a bit from my point of view, the sacred feminine, um, the inner anima, maybe, uh, Jung would call it the, the counter sexual dimension of one's own psyche, masculine and feminine called, uh, Blanche Fleur, the white flower. My French is terrible. Sorry. Um, meaning I don't know any French, <laughs> but he meets the white flower and, um, he commits to a life of chastity with her, which is interesting. This is not to be read literally. It's, um, or is like advice for dating. At least I, I don't think so. It's saying, um, this isn't about my passions and getting what I want. Um, this is about remaining true to the muse, to the mystery, to, um, inspiration because, at least in the feminine masculine dimension in some of these myths, the feminine represents vitality, new life, inspiration, poetry. The, the muses of the underworld, the nine muses of the underworld come from the river of memory. They're all female. Um, they're the thing that's needed for new life and culture. Makes perfect sense. Like the, the feminine is why all of us are here. That's why it's called Mother Earth. So remain chaste. Remain... Um, committed to your muse the rest of your life, and this will help chart a course. And kind of your wild passions and instincts won't um, lead you too far off course, that kind of thing. So there's this beautiful scene where they meet head to head, shoulder to shoulder, hand to hand, body to body, toe to toe, um, in this kind of chaste yin and yang um, union. This is what we would call an awakening you know, a kind of deep and profound awakening. He's still an adolescent in the story. That's at least, that's the way I, I read it. But he has this kind of awakening to really the mysteries of, of his own psyche, if you want to read it psychologically, to the mysteries of life, to um, 
uh, to the depths and to, to what truly inspires us as human beings, that inner muse, that inner inspiration. So this is going to um, help him the rest of his life. And in, and in some way, he never um, cheats on her, so to speak, symbolically or metaphorically. Shortly after he meets the white flower, he stumbles into the grail castle by accident, which tells you something. Real moments of transcendence, real moments of soul encounter, and those might be slightly different things, but sometimes I like to blur the line, meaning a glimpse of your own depths or the glimpse of the divine. That's what I mean by um, transcendence and soul, in, at least in this context often happen by accident. In fact, I'm suspicious of stories where, you know, someone might say, well, I set off to have a trend, a, an experience of the divine, an experience of the soul, and, and I was very disciplined, and I, I knew if I meditated exactly 35 minutes, I could get to that. That's not the way it works, I don't think. Um, and I don't think any weekend retreat or program or book can you manufacture some, something like that. It comes to us as mystery and, and a, as accident. He stumbles into the Fisher King, Parsifal, and he says, oh, I'm tired for the journey. And the Fisher King says, oh, there's a castle up here. Just go down here and to the left. It's just very close. And he does. And the castle door s slams shut and he finds himself in the banquet hall. And and before Parsifal begins the parade of the banquet, it's like the mysteries of life, the deep symbols, um, like the structures, the, the, the structures of the psyche that are profoundly true, my interpretation, are paraded before him. The lance and the sword, and, and I think he has a sword with him. Um, the, the banquet, there are a bunch of other symbols, and the grail itself is finally brought out. And it's unlimited food and wine. And he is amazed. How did he ever find? And it's like he set off for the Holy Grail and he found it. So it's like, okay, story done, you know? Um, like in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, they, they're like, let's go to Camelot. Let's go to Camelot. Let's go to Camelot. Then they, then they say, oh, it's a silly place. Let's not go there. So it's like they get there relatively easily, and then the second journey begins, which is exactly what happens to Parsifal. So he forgets to ask the question. He instead, instead trusts his mother's advice. Well, she did say don't ask too many questions, and after all, it's pretty good food, and um, you know, maybe I can taste the grail and, and just kind of hang out here and live, and maybe, maybe the Fisher King and I can you know, swap fishing stories, and seems pretty good. And I shouldn't ask too many questions because I might get in trouble, and my mother's underwear is reminding me of this, and I, maybe the grandfather told me to ask whom does the grail serve, but that seems, seems a little inappropriate right now, so he doesn't ask the question. He goes to bed that night. He wakes up in the morning, and everything is vanished, and he gets kicked out of the castle. The story is saying something like, um, our first awakenings are hard to integrate. I think that's what it's saying. Our first awakenings to truth, beauty, love, the divine, the soul, are hard to integrate. We don't know what kind of questions to ask. We might be, we might be forced, we might... Um, have a more narcissistic 
standpoint, well, how can this serve me? How can I achieve enlightenment? How can I, in, how can I stay in this castle, not have to face up to the real world, and just enjoy the fruits here? And that's the very thing that kicks us out. It's very hard to integrate. And, and I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this question. What are my earliest experiences of mystery? I think it's a worthwhile question. A small opening, standing in a field, um, down by the creek, um, walking on the crunchy oak leaves of fall in the Virginia mountains. Um, what are my earliest surprise encounters with mystery? I didn't call it that as a kid. I just had an encounter with mystery, but a sense of my life is bigger. Life is more mysterious, something like that. Life is bigger than I thought. Um, life is scarier and more mysterious than I thought, kind of simultaneously. And yet, those early awakenings are hard to integrate because the whole world is saying, well, conform, punch the clock, do the right thing, obey the rules. Um, we'll tell you exactly, at least in my case, what God is all about. And if you disagree, you're not welcome here, you know? And, I, and maybe that's just what tradition is always saying. So it's, there's this tension, but it's hard to integrate. I think about that um, you know, I, I don't know what kind of circles you float in, but I know loads of people right now who are, are experimenting with psilocybin, ayahuasca, other, um, um, you know, hallucinogenic uh, medicines and drugs. And there seems to be absolutely no question, including the research coming out of Johns Hopkins, that you have something like a transcendent experience, even an experience of God, the divine, and, and of course, different ones, different kinds of uh, substances create different kinds of experiences, but it's, it's, it's almost like a, a revolution is at hand, like kind of started with the 60s and then kind of went underground and now it's back, that kind of thing. And here's something I wonder about, genuine question I wonder about, um, how much of that can be integrated? If it happens too soon and too early to the adolescent psyche, and let's be honest, that's where most of us live. Most of us are not adults, certainly not elders. We, we have gaping wounds walking around that we're, many of us are in denial of. How much of that can be integrated? My guess is much of it, you get kicked right out of the castle. And maybe you need another 20 years to integrate that kind of flood. And be careful when you open up to the unconscious via these mechanisms, because um, especially if you carry some trauma, you can be flooded. And that is some serious business. A friend of mine, a therapist who was working with someone, um, a client, and the client said, this is what I'd like to do. And he said, probably not a good idea for you. And he ended up in a psych ward. And this is no joke. Um, opening up to... Uh, the unconscious like this uh, via substance. So just, to, just from my perspective over here, um, Carl Jung says, what does he say about um, mushrooms? Uh, he says, uh, oh, I've got it, such a good line. Um, uh, beware of un unearned wisdom. <laughs> See, he, I, I, it took me like three minutes to, to work up that. He says it one line, be careful of unearned wisdom. 
So in any case, that's a little like uh, Parsifal here, the holy fool. Flood of, of meaning and depth and beauty in the grail itself, and it can't be integrated, and he forgets to ask the right kind of questions like, whom does the grail serve, and he gets kicked out. So for 20 years, I won't go through all the, the adventures at this point, but for 20 years he wanders around. Probably just growing up, the story might be saying. Just grow up, man. Um, but not letting go of the possibility of, of healing the, the wounded king. So eventually he meets a stranger and they're talking about the grail and they're talking about the castle and he says, yeah, I know where it is, just down here and to the left, as if it's there all along because that's exactly what, what it's like. It's there all along. It's just down the road to the left. It's never far out of reach, just down the road to the left. And he walks into the castle once more. And what's interesting is that the French version of the story ends right there, which I love. Other stories expand and he goes in and he asks the question or whatever. But I like that version of the story because I think that's probably um, more true to how myth tends to work, which is uh, it drops us off at the doorway of transformation. It doesn't manufacture it, and it doesn't tell us too much. It says, what are you going to do now? It drops us off right on the threshold, right on the doorway, or it leads us over the trap door and then, pu then pulls the pin out, and we sit there teetering, and just one, one slight movement, and whew, we get you know, sucked down the rabbit hole ourselves. And I love that. You don't know if Parsifal asked the question or not. You don't know. It's like the very end of the book of Jonah, which I've been working on for my new book. You don't know how much Jonah really integrates this belly of the whale phenomenon down into the underworld, down into a glimpse of truth, down into the grail, down into the cup, down into meaning. And you don't know how well he integrates it by the end of the story. You, you're left to wonder, is he just an angry, you know, um, kind of sulking prophet? And the book of Jonah ends with the question, just like this story ends with the question, will Parsifal ask the ultimate question, being, whom does the grail serve? Because if he asks the question, the king will be healed, the wound will be healed, the possibility for the restoration, like Horus going down in the underworld and collecting up Osiris and giving him vision again, the possibility for new vision, new culture, new progress, new innovation, new depths, new compassion begins to open up. But not until you learn to ask the question, whom does the grail serve? It tells you something about the nature of consciousness. The old stories do. That any form of consciousness, increased consciousness, like we can just take basic things, not, uh, knowledge, uh, technology, science, information, <laughs> um, but maybe deeper than that, insight, meaning, um, something that you've come to through your own journey of suffering, of love. Maybe you've gone through something and you can't believe you made it to the other side. The question is not, how can I drink from the cup? The question is, whom does the cup serve? Do, do you feel the difference in orientation? And, and take this personally, I don't care where you are. In the journey. I don't care if you're, you know, mega enlightened or just at the very beginning of, I wonder if I am even on a spiritual journey, you know, it still applies. Whatever measure of consciousness we've been gifted to receive, whatever graces we have, have been given, 
The right question is, how do they serve? Whom do they serve? How can I turn my life into the flowing cup? Because to drink from the grail is to have that kind of vitality, to have the horn of plenty spilling out of your being, filling the banquet hall. The story is saying, you be that kind of person. And it's also saying, you'll just remain wound identified if you don't learn to ask the question about service. And I think that is the right kind of question when I think about the upcoming election. I don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. None of us may know what's going to happen for the next couple months. We just don't know. We're in that kind of liminality, liminal space, threshold space. We've left the old world, but we haven't arrived in the new one. That's where we are right now. And um, the Grail story, the Fisher King, just is a reminder that, okay, There might be a lot of bad news right now, but I think most of us, most of us, want to grow up. Most of us want to heal our own wounds to start with (laughs) in those quiet moments when we're kind of sick of blaming other people or other public figures. We have this creeping sense of, "Uh, I got my own wounds, and... And this, this story is giving us a little hint. Unless the innocent fool wakes up, the adolescent, childlike, innocent wanderer wakes up, who quests, questions, begins to wander more deeply into the world, unless that we allow that childlike being of wonder. You wonder why Jesus says, unless you change and become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Same thing. We have a kind of inner guide in there. But unless that person wakes up and we allow ourselves to really wonder, what am I doing here? What is the meaning of life? What do I really know about politics? What do I really know about religion? Just to experience and taste a bit of that childlike, parsifal, foolish wonder, we know our wounds will not be healed. And if our wounds will not be healed or begin the healing process, it's probably a better way of saying it, then our families and our communities and our neighborhoods and our country is a little sicker than it needs to be. So I wish you well. I hope you heard a hint, a clue, a guess. And I'll see you next time. Peace.